know, one of the things I was thinking about, because we've been talking about healthy church, and, and you know, this conference comes at a good time. In some, some sense, it might be like a little bit ahead of its time, but, but maybe not. You know, I think God has timing for these things. And I was thinking about this, that, that one of the signs of a healthy church, and you may or may not like this, okay? But one of the signs of a healthy church is a healthy church attracts sick people, okay? So a healthy church attracts sick people. Why? Well, because when, when they see a healthy church, they see people who are not perfect and not pretending to be perfect, but people who have a genuine love for each other, genuine care. They see a community of grace and forgiveness. They know that if they go there, you know, as Morris said, the first thought isn't going to be to be judged for what they aren't. And they find it's a place of healing. So um, maybe you're one of those people that's like, yeah, I'm sick and I like it here. Okay, so that's good, okay? But just understand, that's what it is. And some of us don't want that. We, we want, we, what we mean by healthy church is really not healthy. What we believe is it's a church I like. Right? It's a church I like. That's what we mistake for being a healthy church. But a healthy church, it's, again, it's, it's this, this community of disciples who are united and growing together in such a, just such a unique way that it will attract people, people who are, who are sick. You know, I was, it was interesting after I did my part yesterday and just the brief time I was there, you know, several people came up and were talking to me, and, and some of them were actually at the conference not because they wanted to know how to help, but because they needed help. And they were talking to me about that. And so I was like, you know, but just by doing this conference, you know, I was able to come into contact, and other people were able to, able to come in contact with people who need help now. And if you saw them, you would never guess that, that's, that they needed help until they felt like they could talk to somebody. And so I just want to encourage, encourage you in that and help you know that you know, a healthy church will attract hurting people. Well, we're going to continue in our study of 1 John and look at verses 15 through 17. And again, um, you know, the, 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 the problem that we have that John is dealing with is John is... John is trying to help a church understand what is, what is false teaching, what is true teaching. And the reason John's letter is so, is so important, so significant, 2,000 years, it's still significant, is that we still have this problem in today. Not just most people in the world, most Christians don't really understand what the Bible says a Christian is. They don't really know. They, they have a general idea, you know, and that should be surprising to you, should be shocking to you, but it may not be. We, we get it when the world doesn't understand who we are, okay? They're not coming to Sunday school, Bible study, they haven't grown up in the church, they're not around it, but, but what should be surprising to us, and maybe a little troubling, is to, is to understand that most Christians, don't really understand what the Bible says a Christian is. And, you know, one of the ways, one of the reasons I can say this with confidence, not just my observation, 
You notice again, it's because of the, 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 the statistics that Eric was, was, was sharing with us when we were talking about worldviews earlier. And, and he was talking about how the majority of people who consider themselves practicing Christians, that their conception of God isn't even biblical. That they don't even have a, a full understanding of who God is. If you don't understand who God is, what makes you think you understand who Jesus is, what his plan of salvation is, what his kingdom is, and who he's called us to be. So hopefully, when I talk about most Christians, I'm talking about people outside these walls. Hopefully, all of you know what the Bible says a Christian is. And that's great. And if that's the case, um, just humor me. Let me get through the message, because I know I prepared it, so I might as well tell you. But if you don't, or if you think you know, and this doesn't really kind of jive with what you think a Christian is, you know, again, is, is this what the Bible says? And if we're going to follow what the Bible says, what, what do we need to change about our ideas about what a Christian is? So, in 1 John, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So remember, John's talking to this church, and this church has been kind of infiltrated by people who aren't, they aren't trying to destroy the church. They're not trying to, to, to um, mess up the doctrines. They actually really sincerely believe that what they're saying is true. And what's the problem is, is that they have certain ideas, certain philosophies, certain thoughts that they cannot get to jive with Christianity. And so rather than allow Christianity to change their thoughts and their ideas, they're trying to modify Christianity so it goes along with these thoughts and ideas. So again, these, these you know, we shouldn't get in our mind that false teachers are, are like these evil people there to destroy the church. No, they, they, many of them believe they are Christians. Then they are sincere about their faith. Sincerity is important, but since if you're sincere about something that's wrong, you're still wrong, even though you're sincere. And so um, John's trying to address this, this problem. And remember, John is really the last of the first generation. He's certainly the last of the first generation Christians who, who actually you know, knew Jesus closely. And so they, they look at him as this authority figure. They look at him as someone who knows. So they're going to listen. They want to know. And so he, he's, he's saying these things. And, and again, John is often pictured in, in Da Vinci's Lord's Supper as, as being this kind of almost like feminine-looking guy, you know, hanging around Jesus like he's soft and weak. But as we've already seen from here, from verse 1, John is swinging. 
for the fences. He is going right after these false doctrines from the very, very beginning. And, he's, and he's, he's removing these safe places where either the false teachers or people who want to believe the false teachers. See, we want to believe false teachers for different reasons. Uh, sometimes we want to believe them because, you know what? They may be teaching something false, but at least they're coming to church. So we don't want to tell them they're false because they might stop coming, right? So people want to hold on. A lot of times the false teacher might be really nice. They may be nicer than the person speaking truth. Or they may be our friend, or they might be our relative, or someone that we know. And, and we have these, 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 these things where we go like, well, you know, can't we kind of, you know, find the compromise? There's a lot of things in life there's a lot of things in life that we can compromise on. Truth is not one of them. Let me just make sure you understand. If you compromise truth, you have moved into falseness. Get it? Especially as Christians, and we've been talking about this here, and we've talked about it um, in my Sunday school class Sunday morning, We've been talking about that if we are people of truth, if we're followers of Christ, Jesus, who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, if that's true, the standard on us is very high. Our truth needs to be true all the way down to the very foundation, the core. There can't be falseness in our truth. We have a higher standard. If we weren't really following the truth, you know, we might be able to get away with stuff. We might be able to, to exaggerate sometimes. We might be able to, to misremember facts to kind of suit our argument. But if we're people of truth, we need to be people of truth. And so John's taking that away, and, and, and he's been saying from the beginning, there's no safe middle ground. You're in the light or you're in the dark. You love or you hate. There's no safe middle ground. You know, last week we uh, ended the, the message with, with John writing about, you know, he says, like, dear children, and then he says, dear fathers, and, and he says, dear young men, and, and he's really writing to the whole church. And the point was this. He's, he was saying, guys, I'm telling you hard stuff. But I'm telling you because you can, you, can, you can receive it because there's part of you that knows that it's true. My question is, can John write the same thing to us? Are we ready to receive this idea of what Christianity is, that there is, there is light and there is dark. There's no middle ground. That we can't hang out in the middle and say, I don't, I don't hate them, but I don't love them, and that's okay. And to know that John's saying, no, you cannot. You're in the light, you're in the dark. Are we able to, to receive that? Is there something inside of us that goes, yeah, I know that's true. I know it's true. 
Maybe I'm not living it. Maybe I'm not, you know, really, you know, it really hasn't taken hold of my life, but I know it's true. I think a lot of us are there. And if you are, then you're able to receive the tough things that John is saying. So the first thing he says, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And he says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Two things. Two things that disciples cannot love. They cannot love the way the world loves. How does the world love? How is it different from the way God loves? Well, part of it just comes from the idea of, of being finite rather than infinite. The world, you know, and when he's talking about world here, he's talking about human beings, you know, all of humanity. And the, the way that the world loves is based in what the, what the world values most. And even though we don't know this because it's somewhat masked in our society, what we value most is, is life. What we value most is surviving. What we value most is not dying. I mean, I suppose some people might read these articles, but if someone said, here are five foods that if you eat them, it will help prevent heart attacks. We'll read that article. But if someone says, their article is, here are five foods that are sure to trigger a heart attack right away. Well, you might read it to know not to eat those foods, but you're not going to read it to go, ooh, I should eat these things. Right? The, 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 whole, the whole emphasis is on staying healthy, staying alive. Again, it's who we are. We have this desire within us, but we don't really see it in our, we don't really see it in our lives. You know, we don't, we don't wake up thinking we're going to be, you know, attacked by our enemies and, and we're going to be wiped out that, that, you know, all of us here in the Wailai Kahala area, we're going to get invaded by those uh, crazy people in Aina Haina and they're going to come in here and they're going to attack us and threaten our, our way of life and our survival. We don't think like that. No, we don't, we're not thinking right now people on Maui are plotting to invade Oahu, right? We don't live that way. And so because of that, we think. We're not really driven by these same things. But it manifests itself in, a, in different ways. And the way that I see it manifests itself is that the basis of most of our relationships even relationships that we call love, if they're not marked by God's love, they're based in power, power-based relationships. A lot of marriages are power-based relationships. Who's in control? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? doesn't mean that there's not good feelings there and there's not love there, but there's, there's this, this, this power struggle. And so it, it manifests itself in, 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 in how we you know, think about ourselves. A lot of what we want is, is we want control. We somehow want control. You know, 
we, 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 we look for ways of, of uh, you know, acquiring power, moving up. It's the basis of, of so many of our relationships. If we make friends, we're making friends be with the idea that somehow these friends are going to help me. You know, we live in a society, you know, that often, you know, it's like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And again, on the surface, are these evil things? No. But make no mistake, they're not love. They're not God's love. We, we, if anything, there's some form of self-love. And sometimes we extend self-love to, you know, maybe our family or whatever we define as our kind. What's happening in our culture today is, is that is, is the traditional ways that people have grouped themselves are, are going away. Some people are still holding on to them, but younger and younger generations are changing the traditional ways of how they group themselves. They're grouping themselves um, according to, you know, different social beliefs, political beliefs, um, their own, you know, sexuality or whatever. They're grouping them way, themselves in different ways. And then what's happening is the different groups are creating bigger groups to, you know, form alliances so that they can have more influence in the culture. But make no mistake, that's not love. It's still power-based grouping. It's still looking for people who are like me in some way so that we can together gain power and we together can be influential. It's not love. And what's interesting is you find groups that, that in, if there wasn't a bigger enemy, they would be at war with each other. And the only reason they're together is because they realize together they got to defeat that other enemy. Guess what happens when they defeat the other enemy? They're going to go right back to fighting again. Fighting with each other because it's, it's not love. It's a temporary truce. It's an alliance of convenience. And it doesn't mean you can't sometimes have a relationship that's kind of mixture, power and love. I think a lot of marriages are that way. But as I've said before, with marriages, if you make marriages about power, about control, you know, winners and losers, if that's what happens, then eventually, only one of two things can, can happen. You're either going to be a loser or you're going to be married to one. You want to really kill your relationship? Win. Win the power struggle. Your spouse just gives up. Don't, doesn't fight anymore. Ask them what they want to do. I don't know, whatever you want to do. What are your dreams? Uh, I'm, I don't have dreams. Because they're beaten. You won. Yay. Because it was power-based. God says, no. There's another way. 
God's way is, is love-based. And it's this love that's not be generated from love of self. It's love of God, love from God. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's not about winning or gaining. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about helping. It's about lifting the ones you love up. It's different. It's why as Christians we're called to to spread the gospel. It's why as Christians we're called to, to communicate God's word and not leave it behind. It's because, it's not because we're right and they're wrong. That's how it was kind of presented to me when I was growing up. We're right, they're wrong. So we gotta win, because we're right. That's still power-based. It wasn't communicated enough to me, and maybe it was, and I was just too thick, I wasn't getting it, that it wasn't about winning right and wrong, but it was because you were taking truth you were taking God's way, that God says, this is the best way for us to live. This makes everything better. It raises everyone. That's why. Totally different attitude. Instead of seeing the person who's not a Christian or following another religion or even another denomination, as seeing, instead of seeing them as, as an enemy that has to be overcome, I see them people who need light. They need love. They need God's word. They need his plan. That's what they need. Different. I'm not a soldier. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm an EMT. It's different, very different. See, that's why the disciples cannot love the way the world loves and still claim to be of the Father. Because that's not the way the Father loves. See, the Father's not concerned about winning. You know why? He's the Father. He's all powerful. It's not about winning. If it was about winning, and you're the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, ever-present, eternal God fighting against finite human beings that you created, who's going to win? Well, if Marvel Comics writes the movie, somehow human beings will win. But in reality, omnipotent means omnipotent. It's not about winning. It's about loving. John will later write in this letter, God is love. Again, not love is God. God is love. It's not that disciples should not. It's not that they should not love the way the world loves. It's they cannot. It's not possible. It's not a choice. Because you've been so changed 
through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been so changed by His Spirit, you cannot love the way the world loves. It doesn't mean you, you, you're not going to make mistakes. Remember, John always keeps saying, you cannot say you're without sin. But what it means is like there at the core of your being, if you start getting into power-based things, and even if you're a little confused, and someone comes along and says, you know, why are you not operating out of love? You immediately go, that's right. I gotta fix that. I remember when I was a, when I was working at a school and on the mainland, and and uh, there was this one guy that was so easy to push his buttons and make him really upset. And he worked in another office, and so for whatever reason, I was, you know, pushing his buttons, and it was. It was funny because it started out as like a right thing to do. Like, you know, something this person was doing needed to stop. But I remember my secretary asked me after like the third or fourth exchange, and I was about to send the next one, and she goes, What are you hoping to accomplish? And I realized I wasn't trying to accomplish love. I wasn't trying to help that other person. I just wanted to push his buttons because it was funny. So I didn't send the message because there was something inside of me that she reminded me of. But this is saying you cannot love the way the world loves. But he also says, love the world, but he also says, the things of the world. And again, this is like, when people ever would preach on this, it would be like whatever that particular pastor or Bible study teacher's list was. What were the things of the world? And it was whatever the list was. I wasn't, um, I wasn't around when this was considered a sin. My mom was, and she, this, my mom was, raised very conservative Christian in Hawaii, but her, her one vice, chewing gum. And she didn't just chew gum, she did that thing where you pop it. You guys all know what this is, right? She would like chew it, yeah, make that sound, right? You know, she, she told us she didn't know who Elvis was because in her churches, you didn't listen to rock and roll music. She didn't go to the movies when she was younger. She never played cards. She never danced. But she chewed gum, right? She chewed gum. Because everybody's got their list when they say, oh, those are the things of the world. Those are the things of the world. Even when people argue about the church, they say, you know, the church is becoming like the world. I always want to know, like, what do you mean by that? In some sense, the church has always been like the world. I notice none of you wore togas today. And none of you asked me, uh, poseques. Why didn't you ask me poseques? It means how are you in Greek? Well, because you're going to go, well, because things have changed. Yeah, things have changed. The church has always changed with culture. But there is a way that disciples should not. And unfortunately, when we're always chasing these surface things, 
we miss the really deep things that have really infected the church and really caused problems with the church. Because we're too busy chasing the kind of music or whether we have pews or chairs or whether we you know, are um, you know, out in the community or in a you know, campus setting or you know, does the, the pastor wear a tie or does he you know, get to wear polo shirts or, or whatnot. Right? We're so thinking about those things that we miss the ways we really have become like the world, the important things. And what are those things? Well, I could, I could give you a lot of different things, but there's three that I think are major that have affected that have affected especially the church in America. The reason I'm critical of the church in America is because it's the church I know. If I was in China, I would be critical of the church in China. If I was in Kenya, I'd be critical of the church in Kenya. But I know the church in America. I know the strengths, I know the weaknesses. But there's three ways the church in America has, been, has become like the world and values of the world and desires what the world desires as John is saying here. And I'm not saying you individually are this way. You might be. But I'm saying, as a whole, Christians have become this way. And one of, the, one of this, is this is this giving in to individualism. This way of conceiving of ourselves first and foremost as an individual. As, things, as seeing the first goal in life is to be independent that we've given, we've given into that. And then that's infected our churches. Our churches have been less emphasized about community. Some of you are probably thinking like, you know, Pastor Matt, I've been in church longer than you've been alive. You know, I was in church when you still had hair and all this other stuff. And, and you're saying all this, right? And you might be going, I've never heard all this body of Christ, community, living together, closer. I never heard that. And you'd be right. <laughs> you didn't hear it. I didn't hear it either. Because I grew up in the churches where it was about individual, your individual relationship with Jesus Christ. They called it personal, but they meant individual. And then it gets into, the, into to how we are as a church. We no longer develop community. We just have collections of individuals. Doesn't mean you don't have friends, but it does mean that we don't want to move in the direction of 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where when one of us grieves, we all grieve. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We don't want to be the church like in Matthew 25, where it says, none of us goes to bed hungry. None of us feels abandoned and alone. None of us has unmet needs. There's other places in the Bible that, that raises the level of what a community is. And we just haven't really talked about it. And when we have talked about it, it's always been because of individualism. It's an individual choice to be that way or not. The church was never meant to be a collection of individuals. It was always meant to be a community, a body, 
the family. Unrelated people related through Jesus Christ. The second thing, one of my first sermons here, most some of you weren't here when I first came, but first sermons here was on the tyranny of like. The tyranny of like. The other thing that's, that's happened in our culture is our culture has become obsessed with entertainment and obsessed with what we like. I like it, I don't like it. And if I like it, then I'm going to support it, and if I don't like it, I won't. And the fact that I'm saying that, you, some of you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? Isn't that okay? There's this high value on entertainment. And again, there's nothing wrong with having good music. I like the fact that we have good music. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with pastor telling jokes. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when, is when people just want to be entertained. They want a little bit of truth, but they just want to be entertained. They want what they like. They're driven by what they like. It's why, you know, one of the big differences between really big churches and smaller churches is bigger churches are better at getting people to come in the front door by doing things that people like. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to, to, to doing that. But when, when a church, when a church community is driven by what we like and by our entertainment, community's hard. One of the takeaways I hope you got from the conference is you want to help people who are hurting it's not by saying, here's three things you can do, see you later. It's about connecting with them, relating to them, investing in them. Community can be difficult, and you're not going to like it sometimes. But we're called to be it anyways. The third thing. The third thing is pragmatism. And pragmatism in and of itself isn't wrong, but it's the pragmatism that, that has kind of come, come into our culture, which is, it's all about measurable results. We don't talk about quality as much as we talk about quantity. And we will compromise doing things the way the Bible says so that we can produce numbers. The Bible warns us against this. King David, King David wanted to have a census taken and God had told him, don't take a census, and he took it anyways. And it's pretty clear he wanted to take it because of his own pride. When John is talking about pride of life, he's talking about you know, our possessions and, and the things we accumulate, our position. And he's saying, that's what we live for. And that's what David was living for. And God was pretty upset about it, that he punished the people. Well, the things of the world we have to be careful because we can't love them. Even if we're affected by them, we can't love it. Even if sometimes they overwhelm us, we cannot love it. We have to know that it's wrong and it goes against what God has called us to be. Well, quickly, the Father's love directs us to God and others and away from ourselves. 
So how do I know? Like, oh, how do I know I'm not giving in to the love of the world or the things of the world? How do I know the Father is in me? How do I know that I'm not, you know, pursuing the, only the, the obsessed with the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life? And it's because when you have the Father's love, the Father's love directs us to love God more, to love one another more. It's less about ourself. In fact, if we're helping ourselves, we're only helping ourselves because we want to be better able to help others. We're growing so that we can better minister to others, better serve others, counsel, guide, teach. And as John writes at the end, the Father's love leads us to the eternal and away from the temporary. Eternal doesn't mean something that's going to come someday. It means things that can happen right now that will last forever. Things that can happen right now that will last forever. And the questions we need to ask ourselves is, what are those things? What are those things? You think about what do you want to last forever? When I was a kid and I used to think about heaven, I used to think like, man, will there be football in heaven? Because I'd be kind of bummed if there's not. And I realized as I got older, it's not really what I should want heaven to be. What are the things we want to last forever? What are the things the Bible tells us are so valuable that God wants them to last forever. See, we cannot love the world and at the same time love those things that last forever. When we love the world, our focus is on the things that will pass away. But he's saying when you do God's will, you will remain forever. And God's will, as he's been talking about, is, is to be a disciple, to be the community, to, to live as God has instructed, to love one another as only God can empower us to love. The world and the things of the world, they're the opposite of being like Christ. Disciples are called to move away from focusing on ourselves and focusing on our kind, however you define that kind. Disciples are called to, to live out the love of God that's been poured out by the Spirit when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And we're reminded this isn't easy. This isn't easy. It's going to sometimes involve self-denial, self-sacrifice. And we do it unconditionally. And unconditionally means we don't do it with expectations of reward or even worldly success. But we do it. We do it because it's who we are. It's who God made us. And it doesn't mean there's not joy. Hard things, tough things, things that require sacrifice, often bring the most joy. There's joy. There's joy in fulfilling our purpose. There's joy in being receivers and givers of God's love. And most of all, 
when we do this, we reveal God in a powerful way to a world that needs to see God and see God truly.